Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love, everybody. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast, and this is the Eid celebration edition of the podcast. This is going to be the last of my solo reflections on what this process of Eid has been like, what this time and what this really special period of Eid has been like for me. Wanted to just see what it would be like to just reflect on what I'm going through and to share that with you and honestly to see how you would respond to it. I wanted to see what would happen with the numbers, what would happen with the comments, what would happen with the response. And I have to tell you, this has made me appreciate this platform and made me really even love you, the people that listen to this. I mean, I love you. I love you. The way that I share, I think you can feel that. I think you know that. Um, and I have for a very long time have loved all of the people that listen to me. Um, I feel like there's a bond that comes from the unseen world of meaning. The, the divine has created a bond between us that's beyond explanation. And regardless of how you show up and regardless of how I show up, Imam Zaid Shakir one time said, come as you are to Islam as it is. And... I, that speaks a lot to me, and I also feel like people are free to come to me as they are, come as you are to me as I am. And really, like in a loving relationship, like that's really what it is. That's the heart of it. You be you. You're free to be you. You're safe being you, and I'm safe being me. And that's how you know we have a bond. And if we can work it out together, then we got a real, very sincere thing happening here. And I have to say that I just wanted to see what would happen if I stopped having guests. This will be my fifth episode like this. That's a long time. You know, that's a lot of episodes. And I usually talk for around an hour and a half or two hours per episode. That's a lot of time talking about my own process, my own experience, my own spiritual tradition, my beliefs. It's a lot. And I know that the Muslims that listen to this podcast are one segment. You know, there's many communities that I've been blessed to be part of. The Muslims are one segment of, of, my, of the listening group. But what I have to say is, and what I've noticed is that the numbers have not dropped. Like the core people that listen to this podcast, you didn't go anywhere. You're here. And I can't tell you how much that means. The other thing is that in this time, in this climate of me talking about Islam for, you know, this episode will probably make around 10 hours of me talking publicly about being a Muslim. Not a single negative comment, not one. Not in my DM, not on social media, not in the comment section, not a single negative comment, not even slightly so. Nothing even resembling a negative comment. You know, I, now the numbers are down a little bit, but I've noticed that numbers are up on other episodes. <laughs> so like, it feels like there are people that are like, you know, I, I get it. 
You know what I mean? But there are people that are going back and like, oh, I guess I never listened to the Feral Manch episode. Or like, let me see what's up with this Dr. Ebony episode. Or let me see what's, you know, let me let me go back and see what Vinnie Paz was talking about. Or let's see what Amanda Seals was talking about. Or, you know, Sa Rock. Like there are other episodes where the numbers are back on the rise again. So it seems like some folks have gone. But overall, our listeners haven't gone anywhere. And most of you all have been listening through this episode, these episodes. And that just really goes to show the very sincere, authentic human connection and bond that I've always felt. It Actually, honestly, it took me a minute. It took me a minute early on to feel it. And you've heard me probably talk through it a little bit with Merce or, you know, I, every, we've all got our own biases. And when I was growing up, it just felt to me in a very, one of the things trauma does is it causes false universals or it inspires false universals in people, you know? So you feel like, you know, trauma kind of fractures or punctures your feeling about what you, the safety you should be able to expect. So you're like, okay, I'm around my family and families are supposed to be safe. Now that is generally a pretty safe universal. You know, families are usually safe. Your family are usually people you're safe with. Now, if that's not the case, then there's something, there's a deep and very profound sickness happening. You know, not that, not that we're always going to be happy and agree. And I'm, I'm not talking about safety in the sense of like, everyone's going to like me and affirm me. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like people that feel like you're supposed to be safer on your family. And then an uncle violates you completely. And then you start to feel like, okay, well, families are not safe or men are not safe or uncles are not safe or, you know, that becomes a false universal. And, you know, so for me, especially if these things happen when we're young, where we're still in our formative years, I had such traumatic experiences with my family and with, um, in these, like, when I was a kid, I was in an overwhelmingly white environment as an albino and... Black people were very loving to me and were very good to me. And it just started in me this kind of like trend and way of being and way of existing and way of expressing myself and and that I, I started adding on to that. And so when I was younger, and I think that it really took my music career and ultimately my spiritual path to really heal this in me. And I think it's healed. Um, but I, I will always acknowledge that there was a bias there in my formative years. And I just always am aware of that, where I felt like white people are not to be trusted, except for a few uh, exceptions that almost prove the rule. You know what I'm saying? There's like, you can always find one white person who is in, who gets, who understands the world as it is. And this person is going to bend over backwards to be good to everybody. You can always find one like that, you know what I mean? But I thought that as a rule, white people were not people that I could connect with. I felt really unsafe physically uh, and emotionally and, and, you know, around white people. And I felt like black people are, I mean, you know, safe or just, you know, I had good feeling. I had, I believed in the possibility for me to be a full person amongst black people. That's the way I felt. And this started from the time I was a little kid. The second episode, the we started this podcast, we dropped the Cornell West episode and another one called The Opening, which is me talking, like telling my kind of early childhood stories and stuff. And that's one of the episodes where the numbers have continued to rise, you know, during these. 
Uh, but so I talked through th some of that stuff. That's the way that I felt from the time I was five years old. And so, uh, but I will say, so when I came into music and I was existing and operating in these two different worlds, where on the one hand, I was touring with Atmosphere, who are my big brothers and I love, and I was touring in a circle of artists that I really respect. And I respected them then. So I've always respected Aesop Rock. I've always respected LP. I've always respected the Grouch. I've always, there's a number of these people that I've always respected. Uh, I didn't always get along with Sage Francis. I didn't always get along with uh, Vinnie Paz. I didn't get always get along with all of them. And there's some of them that I still, uh, they're just not for me, you know. And there are people that I, that there are white dudes that I think have brought a, a lot of, uh, you know, problematic white dude mentality into hip hop that, that does exist. But a lot of that early cohort of people I was touring with, those artists, I respected them and I respect them even more now. And even the ones that I didn't get along with right away, I still respected their pedigree. I still, even though I didn't know Vinnie Paz like that, and if you hear our conversation on this podcast, it's a really beautiful one. But I always knew he was official. I always knew he was authentic. Like I always knew that he, this guy comes from hip hop, you know. And so I, the artists I felt good about, but I felt like the, a lot of the fans liked us for racist reasons because I had never seen these white people at hip hop events and shows and it, cultural things until there was a bunch of white artists for them to listen to. And there's a lot of truth there. But the more that I just poured my heart and soul into the music, I realized that, yes, we all have these things, like society is society, and society is impacting us, shaping us, molding us, and in a lot of ways harming us. And we've all got a lot of healing to do. But the more that I just leaned into uh, sharing my truth in, in every way that I can, the way that I view... Uh, myself, the way that I view my childhood, the way that I view my life, the way that I view the ultimate reality, you know, divinity and, and the cosmic realities, truths, timeless, unseen truths of life, and also race and also politics and also organizing and also my opinions about music and how hip hop should be made. And I just shared it all. It's like, man, here's all of it. And sometimes it's messy and a lot of it I look back on and I'm like, man, whew. you know, there's music that I made in the past that I'm like, man, I would not say that now. I wouldn't put that in somebody else's ears now. I wouldn't expose other people's hearts to this. If people are like, yeah, I'm going to listen to you for an hour in this new album you're making. There's things I wouldn't do to other people's hearts now, but I did them then and I meant them when I did them. I know that. But it really created this bond between the people that listen to me that I trust. And I, I do trust them. I do trust you. And the people that listen to the podcast, it's like, this is another layer. You know what I mean? This is like, there are the people that were at the show in 2007 through 13 or 12. Those were my kind of like breakout years. And there were people that were at the Brother Ali show because... It was the it was a popping thing to be at. So that was one level, you know, and those were the people that are like, yeah, I really love your music, man. It's so you're so amazing. And I'll thank you very much because I hate that damn Jay-Z or I hate Lil Wayne or I hate whoever, 
you know, and your music is virtuous and their music is not, and your music is respectable and their music is not, and you know, you're telling the truth and they're not. And I just felt like you're, you, you have no authority to say that. And then also there's coded language behind that. You know what I mean? And also like, we're both, this, we're both, we're meeting each other because we're in this black cultural art form. So I just wasn't sure how to feel about that. And I still, like those white supremacist kind of undertones are there. And that history of, of th this music is there. It's very real, you know? And so we all have to be aware of how we fit into that and, and what those, what, how those things play out, you know? And so, are they calling you there? Oh, yeah, they are. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. That's the adhan for the nighttime prayer. I thought they had already called it. Um, actually, let me pause real quick. Okay, I'm not sure if you could hear that or not, but I, they started doing the call for the, the nighttime prayer, and um, someone had to go and handle my business. But what I was saying is that there was a time that I really learned the, the bond that could happen between me and the people that listen to me. And, the, and there, was a pe there was a period where going to a Brother Ali show was a, was a hip thing to go to. And like everything else, like that period comes to an end. <laughs> it's one of the things I, I really, I always mean to talk to artists about, you know, that it had a period where like, you're the hip thing. I can't remember what uh, daytime like drama it was. Like there was a soap opera where this guy was saying to this woman like, he was like, yeah, I saw you at the Brother Ali concert last night wearing those leather pants. You were looking hot. You know what I mean? And that was like his way of saying something cool. And it was like a moment like that. So there'd be people at the show who, you know, they were there because it was the thing to do, not necessarily because they were tapped into me. But there's always been levels. Then there are people that like listen to every single word. And there are people that, you know, read the books that I that they think I read and they... You know, they want to go to the places that they know I go to and they go and try to track down the things that they know inspired me and things like that. And so there are always levels to it. And I would say that this podcast has really, then when I started doing VIP meet and greet things, those things also I would find like this group of people are really tuned in. And I feel like, I feel that way about this podcast as well. Like this is people that listen here, we are really tuned into each other. And it really proves that as long as there is a heartfelt human connection on a soul and heart level, even if intellectually we don't see things the same way, and even if we have opinions that don't always line up with each other, that's actually a really, really good thing. It's a good thing to be able to hear from people that don't see the world the exact same way you do, but people with, with whom you interact and sit in good faith. Like, I believe you to be good. I believe your intentions to be good. I believe that if for as much as you can muster, you're trying to be a good person. You're trying to make the world a better place. You're trying to make yourself a better person. You're trying to be and do good. I believe that about you. I don't know about all the ways you're trying to do it. I don't know about all the ways you, but it's, it's, it's actually makes it really valuable for me to sit and listen to you, you know? And, and I think that's extremely important in these times. And I'm very grateful and honored to be able to have that with you that listen to this podcast. So it's a really beautiful thing. 
so this is the last of the five. And then uh, next week, inshallah, we'll go back to the other kind of format of talking to people. And we've got dope conversations recorded and some, some more coming up. Um, but this past few days, so this Thursday for us was the last day of Ramadan. And then Friday go, went into the Eid. And I'm recording this Saturday night for, uh, in Istanbul. So we're on, we just finished the second day of the, of the holiday, the festival. So uh, let's just do some terms. So Ramadan, as you know, is a month in the Islamic calendar. The Islamic calendar doesn't follow uh, the Gregorian calendar that the West follows and that most of the world now follows, or ha at least has to be aware of, uh, goes by calculations related to the sun <clears throat> and related to the earth's going around the sun. And then also time is related to the spinning of the earth. And they have to have things like leap year and daylight savings time and all that stuff to kind of try to make it balance out. They're kind of forcing their, their will and their measurement on nature. Whereas in the Islamic tradition, like most uh, traditional, like most traditions and like most traditional people, uh, we don't force our uh, frames on nature. We actually follow the lead of nature because we believe nature to be the expression of the creator of the unseen, that the seen is the expression of the unseen. And so, uh, for example, we mark our days by... Uh, you know, by what appears to us relatively to be the movement of the sun. So, you know, there's Fajr time, which is the morning, you know, before the sun rises and then sunrise is a time. And then when the sun is at its zenith, it's a certain time, you know, and then you have uh, when the sun is halfway between the zenith and setting, that's another time period. And then right after the sun sets is another time period. And then uh, you also have when the sky gets completely dark, that's another time period. And then also, uh, and this is all related to worship, but it's how we measure time in the Islamic tradition. And then sundown until uh, dawn will also be measured and it will be split into thirds. And that last third of the night uh, is seen as a, as a really important time spiritually. So there's extra praying and remembrance and meditating and worshiping and uh, things that a person can do during that time period. And then also, likewise, for uh, months, like we measure months by the lunar calendar. So when there's a new moon, that's a new month. And so in that sense, Ramadan and all, all Islamic months, they actually... Uh, arrive about 10 days earlier each year than, the, than they did the year before. So the month of Ramadan actually rotates throughout the whole, all of the seasons. So in the 30 years that I've been blessed to be a Muslim, I've had Ramadan in August, I've had it in January, and every point in between. Um, you know, Ramadan makes cycles throughout your life. And also every part of the globe uh, has Ramadan in their summer, in their spring, in their fall, in their winter, in you know, in their uh, all times of year. So uh, Ramadan this particular year fell in the time period that it did, and so it's a you know twenty nine or thirty days is a is a lunar month depending on the sighting of the moon and there are different ways to 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 figure that out or to to track to track that. 
And then afterwards, we have what's called Eid, E-I-D. It's how they usually spell it. It's a letter in Arabic called Ain that doesn't exist in English. So we always have to figure out how do we say this, but it's Eid. And so most of the time you'll see people say Eid, so that kind of sound. Um, and then we say, so Eid, there are two of them in the, in the Islamic calendar, one after the month of fasting, and then the other one is about two months later during the time of the pilgrimage. So there are two Eids. And then when we say Eid Mubarak means may you have a blessed Eid. Or you'll sometimes people say Eid Karim, which means may you have a bountiful Eid. Or sometimes people will add Sa'id, like Eid Sa'id, means may you have happiness and may you have a joyful Eid. Um, a lot of times you can tell that people think that Eid Mubarak is the name of the holiday. So they'll say happy Eid Mubarak or have a happy Eid Mubarak. But Eid Mubarak actually is the, the well wishes, like that is the greeting for Eid. So you would just say, you know, happy Eid or Eid Mubarak. Um, and the, the two names of the holiday are Eid al-Fitr, al which means the Eid of breaking the fast and coming back to a more natural way of life. And then Eid al-Adha, the Eid of the sacrifice because part of the, the uh, pilgrimage is to sacrifice uh, animals. And both of the Eids, um, so they're, they're, it's a time to be joyful. And, you know, for me, Ramadan, really this time, I'm, I'm usually, I'm so happy when Ramadan comes, and a lot of Muslims are. And I have different degrees of like separation anxiety with Ramadan when it gets to the end. And this year in particular, I had, an, I had a beautiful Ramadan. I had a really, it was about work. Like I wasn't a whole lot of partying and socializing and hanging out. But like this Ramadan was really about disciplining the ego, cutting down on food, really just really, really scaling back the amount of food that I was eating and feeling that that had a direct impact on my energy and my body and my spirit and my soul and my focus and my concentration and my feelings, my emotional self. Like, I just really learned what's best for me is to eat one healthy meal a day. That's what's best for my body. And, you know, I just, it's its what's best for my energy and my sleep and everything. And so that was really beautiful. And then uh, the nighttime prayers. And then also I, had a, I developed a morning ritual with the Quran that's really powerful and impactful. And uh, the stuff that I was doing with my children and all of this, that was beautiful. And I always feel every year I get the energy to be the kind of Muslim that I wish I was all year round. You know, and this time I was able to really prepare for it and uh, was able to just kind of give the heads up to the people that I work with that I'm really going to be focusing on Eid or on, uh, on Ramadan. So when Ramadan came to the last night, man, it felt to me so like me and my wife, when we met, she lived in New York and I lived in Minneapolis and I was on tour all the time. And so the first like six months, we, we were coming up on 20 years. The first six months of our... Uh, of our relationship was long distance. And like, it was immediate with us. Like anyone that was around us at that time, it was sickeningly immediate for us. Like it was just like, okay, um, we're getting married. This is what, we just started making plans immediately. And so we would see each other and we would prepare to see each other and plan for it. And 
while we were there, we would make sure to be really focused and present and all of this stuff. And it was so beautiful. And then usually, so, you know, you have like four days together or something. And then when you start getting to that, you know, that last night where tomorrow we got to get up and somebody's going to the airport to fly home or to fly back to tour or whatever, you just know that that thing is coming. You just start to dread it and get heartbroken. And then Thursday night for me was like that. I was I went and got my my beard trimmed. I went and got cleaned up. I was has like for real like Wolfman stuff going on with the beard. So I went in there and I saw my barber, who's a really spiritual, religious, beautiful man. I saw him, and we were able to talk and check in, and you know I got my beard cleaned up. And then I actually went to the mall of all places, and you know because I had to get some things like you you want to like you try to make the Eid really celebratory and festive. And for, you know, it's good for everybody. It's good for your kids and it's good for the community and stuff. But it's also really important because leaving Ramadan can feel really heartbreaking. It's just like, what am I going to do without Ramadan? It's just me and my corny difficulty with keeping promises to myself. You know what I mean? Like I had this kind of like external opportunity and excuse to focus everything the way that I wish I always did. And what what am I going to be like when that's gone? What's it going to feel like to be me after this is done? It's, it's for me, it was really rough, you know, especially this year. So I'm at the mall and like, I'm trying to get these last minute things for everybody's outfits and stuff. And they got, you know, all this, all the malls and public places in, in uh, Turkey, in Istanbul, they've got prayer areas. And so, you know, in this mall I was in, they had a nice little prayer area and I went in there and there was somebody else praying and it's just kind of the final hours of Ramadan. And then the time just slips through your fingers and then it's gone. A lot like life. And it's like, man, I wanted to do more. No matter what I did, I wish I did more. And that's the way it's going to feel at the end of our lives. Like, I wish I did more. I'm happy with what I did. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm grateful that I was guided. I'm grateful that for the discipline that I did have, grateful for the the good that I did, grateful for the moments of presence and, and growth. And, you know, if I was blessed to be generous, if I was blessed to be diligent, I'm grateful for all of that. But I wish I did more because now it's over and that's time that I can never get back. And I start thinking about those times that I was scrolling on social media or the times that I was you know, focused on something else. Because doing something outside of Ramadan, it's just not the same, you know. And so those last those last moments of, of Ramadan, when it was just running away and there was nothing I could do, you know, except for make my intentions to keep these practices, you know. Uh, there are people in Yemen, I'm told, that the six months after Ramadan, they spend uh, asking that their Ramadan was accepted and they trying to maintain those practices, you know, and then they spend the following six months preparing for the next Ramadan, uh, as, you know, longing for it and asking Allah for it to, to receive it and to reach it and to honor it. And, you know, so the whole year is about the relationship with Ramadan. And I feel that, man, like I, I, I really resonate with that. And so those last moments, it really reminded me of the time when me and my wife would visit each other 
early in our time together and that I, we knew we were leaving, you know. And, um, you know, so that, that night was, 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 was what it was. But then the next day I got up the morning of the Eid and, you know, and I, I put on my clothes and uh, it was also my daughter's birthday. And so I got up early in the morning, prayed the morning prayer at home, put on my clothes, put on my, my oodimentary oud, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The expensive stuff, man, the good stuff that you save for holidays and special occasions. And I put it on, man. I was not stingy with it. Went to the prayer, went to this historic mosque in my neighborhood, and I had not coordinated with all of my dudes, like the the do, the brothers in my life that live in my neighborhood. Um I don't know if anybody coordinated for us to all be at the prayer at the same mosque. Because you can just go to your local mosque. There's like two. I passed like three or four mosques on my way to the one that I went to. Um, and so I got in there and it was packed. And there's these uh, these like singers singing these like Ottoman spiritual songs. And uh, the imam was giving a talk in Turkish explaining, you know, reminding everybody uh, the actual sacred ritual of the prayer, how it's done and what the significance of it and things. I could just kind of follow a little bit of the Turkish. I don't know Turkish like I should, you know, and then we stood up and I prayed with the pe with the people in my neighborhood. And then when I, I didn't realize that all of my dudes were there until we came out. And I just, I'm looking around me at this like group of men that I, that are in my life. You know, and these are all, most of them are, we most of us are Westerners who came to live in this particular neighborhood in Uskudar, Istanbul on the Asian side, this kind of traditional neighborhood. Now, there's a very, very like overtly religious neighborhood on the European side called Fatih. Uh, and there's particularly a mosque called the Ismail Aga Mosque uh, and a neighborhood that sometimes they call Charshamba, which means Wednesday in uh in Turkish, because that's when they have their farmer's market is on Wednesdays. And that place, like the overwhelming majority of men are going to have a turban on and a long uh, robe. And the women are going to be wearing um, like all they're going to, they're all going to be wearing abayas, like the overgarments. And a lot of them will also have their faces veiled and the people there are just like that. That's the norm in that particular neighborhood. That's not the neighborhood that we live in. We go there, but that's not the neighborhood we live in. You know what I mean? So these are people who you're going to see at the mosque for as many of the daily prayers as possible, but they might be in, you know, jeans and Jordans. Uh, you know, but also these are Westerners who came here to have, to seek this type of life and learning and experience for our children and, uh, transformation for ourselves, you know, and I'm just looking around me and I'm like, man, I am surrounded by incredible men. These are men that are loving, strong, decisive, humble, uh, vigilant, uh, caretakers, caregivers. These are fathers. Um, these are uh, people who are servants of their families. Like, I know them, you know. I know that they're servants. I know that these are people who, just like we're told about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, like, we don't help out in our house. When we're watching our children, we're not babysitting. 
You know what I mean? The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a servant. Like they asked our mothers, his wives, what was he like at home? He served his family. He cooked food. He sewed. Uh, he cleaned. He repaired things. Uh, he ran errands. He did shopping. He did business. He uh, was, you know, helping take care of the children. You know, he was a servant. Like that's what, that's part of what it is to be a man. You know, and these men, I'm looking around at these guys, and I'm like, man, this is my circle. And I felt so grateful. Like these brothers, like, just really made me feel like the, I, I feel good about celebrating this. I feel really good about celebrating that. We're at this beautiful historic mosque that was actually built in honor of a woman. And it was commissioned by a woman, <clears throat> you know. And this is a beautiful thing, man. This is a beautiful thing. And then I went home, and because it was my daughter's birthday, I made her favorite breakfast and got to work serving. I ironed everybody's clothes, you know. I made coffee because I, you know, I'm, I'm, come on, man. Me make, I, I can make some coffee, man. You get, if I'm able to get my hands on the right beans, I can make some coffee. And we got the good, the best beans we could get in Istanbul. And uh, so I made some coffee and made breakfast for everybody. Ironed everybody's clothes. And uh, we got, you know, got everybody together. And then we went to a gathering. The, the brother who teaches me how to recite the Quran, uh, he and his wife, their family, they put together these gatherings. And just amazing. Another one of the men that I'm around, this guy's younger than me. I feel like he's like 10 years younger than me, maybe. But I look up to him profoundly, you know, uh, memorize the Quran. He can teach all of the ways of reciting the Quran. Uh, he's also really... Uh, he's also a, a dentist. So in his teaching how to recite the Quran, he'll say, you know, you put your tongue against this palate and these molars, and this is how you make this sound and, you know, all this stuff. He's using like dental terminology. And a lot of the dental terminology was actually developed by people who were trying to convey the proper pronunciation of the letters in Arabic language for reciting the Quran. And they had this really dope gathering, get together, all kind of stuff for the kids. And there's singers and there's bouncy castles and there's food. And like a lot of the high level scholars uh, in our neighborhood, uh, they go to this younger man's and his family, like it's, you know, the, the, them and their children, uh, their get together. It's the second year in a row that I've been there. And like major scholars uh, are at these gatherings. And we're all just chilling and, you know, talking about what Ramadan was like for us and things like that. And then, you know, we came home from that and just this like beautiful coming together of people. And, you know, in America, it's like everything in America is kind of on steroids. So in America, it used to be a big deal to get your Eid outfit together. And it's almost like, I don't say this to diss because I did it too. You know, I definitely wore very expensive tailored suits to eat. I did it too. And there's like, you know, people like, get, and it's a big deal. And because in America, you have to, there's a feeling of like, we've got to defend and celebrate our identity as Muslims because we're a minority group. And so I understand it totally, completely. 
But, you know, in Istanbul, like, I don't spend money on clothes like that the way that I used to. I just, you know, and I don't own many clothes. And neither does my wife and neither do our kids. But so it w- wasn't anything too special, but we just put a little attention into making sure that we had something to wear that was intentional and put together, you know. So we did that and, you know, all our daughters had stuff on and, the, the, you know, the, the littler ones, they were matching and... It was nice, man. And we went there and like everybody is, but but in Istanbul, there's a different thing where like when you come here, um, you're just really embracing the simplicity of life here. There's a very sober simplicity to Islam in Turkey. Uh, it's not, um, you know, there are places where you go where people are very energetic and especially the people that might be called by others Sufis. You know, and here they're singing and things, and, and there's all of these spiritual practices, but it's not, uh, there's not a whole lot of, like, emotion on display. It's very sober, and it's very dignified, and it's very subtle. And that's a good thing for people like us, you know, to learn that, like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to show out. Like, you don't have to make a show out of it. And it's weird. And I'm, I mean, the food is like that. The calligraphy is like that. The dress is like that. It's a very, it's a place that th- that that really celebrates simplicity, you know. So the food is very simple. Whereas, like, you come from America and you're used to something just bursting with flavor that's on ten, you know what I mean? And like the and, and Turkish food is very simple food, but it's really nice, and you start to learn to appreciate this simple perfection of it this the simplicity of it is really nice and you start like it's nice food i used to hear people say that like you know for us it's got to be bussing <laughs> in america it's got to be bussing here it's like oh this is nice food and it is nice you know and um so the the i just really noticed that just the 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 healthy sober simplicity of people and their interactions and their the simple dignity of that that this life inspires in people here i really appreciated that um so then we came back home and we celebrated my daughter's birthday and it was really good and she had it coming you know and it really was very touching and very beautiful and really nice and um uh, there's a sister here, a young sister, she's really young, that makes uh, baked goods uh, called NR Bakery. I'm just going to give that secret away this time. Um, I believe she's, a, I still haven't met her, but we've messaged each other on Instagram. I think she's a young Afghani-American sister from the Bay. Man, when I tell you, like, her baked stuff is impeccable. I think she's like 18 or something. I haven't met her. My wife met her. And she, I don't know if she does this for everybody. For us, she delivers. I think she delivers though. And it's her business. So like you, you know, you put your order in advance and you send her the money and things. Man, so she made some stuff for the celebration and some specific things for what my daughter wanted. I'm telling you, man, this stuff, I'm like, dude, how did you learn to do this? How are you doing this without, you know, without any kind of, uh, without any kind of professional equipment, man? But 
had some really nice like baked goods and and then uh saturday today was the second day of eid and so we went out in our neighborhood and uh had the turkish ice cream and you know and then earlier actually second to last day of eid uh some dear friends of mine visited uh istanbul they were visiting our teachers in west africa we have uh, teachers and a community in the Gambia, West Africa. And so they were there visiting them. They're from California. But a lot of times people, there's a flight you can take through Istanbul. And so people will do that. So they kind of get two trips out of it. And so uh, they came and visited. I don't know if they'd want me to say, but uh, they're community people. It's a husband and wife that studied Islam together. Like part of their marriage is that they studied at Al-Azhar University together, the one of the most ancient still functioning universities in the world. Al-Azhar is one of them. Qarawain is one of them. Uh, Timbuktu is one of them. But Qarawain is still in effect. Azhar is still in effect. And so they uh, studied at Al-Azhar and they have a community project that they do together in California. And just beautiful people. And their kids were there and I got to hang out with their kids and their kids are like old enough for me to like talk to and like know them now. Like I was, I knew them, their family when their children were born, but you know, they, I never got a chance to really get a sense of their personalities, but man, they're both old enough now that I could like hang out with them and talk to them. And um, so, yeah, one of the, one of the second to last evening, of Ramadan, I got to spend with them, and they came in, and we went to visit uh, the resting place of Abu Ayyub al Ansari that they call Ayyub Sultan. This is the uh, one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad. That when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, went to Med to Medina from Mecca, they went from Mecca to a city called Yathrib, which became known as Medina to Nebi, the city. Medina means city. At Medina, Medina to Nebi, the city of the Prophet, وسلم, peace be upon him, or Medina to Munawwara, the enlightened city, the city of light. You know, um, and when they went there, it was like Meccans coming to Medina. They were immigrants, you know, and the people in Medina opened their homes to the people of Mecca. So, like, when we talk about being allies, like, we're going to be an ally. It's kind of like, okay, that's noble. Um, but what we have in this tradition is like people live together and they married each other. And it's like you live in my house until you're set up and we live together as family and we learn how to blend our cultures together. They actually like lived with each other. And so they were all fighting over like who's, who's going to house the prophet himself, peace be upon him. And so the prophet Muhammad said, um, he got off the camel that he was riding and he said, I'm going to let this camel go. And wherever the camel sits down to rest, the nearest house, that's where I'll stay. And so the camel sat down at the, house, the home of Abu Ayyub and his wife. And so the Prophet Muhammad lived in their home. They actually hosted the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And they cooked for him and they cared for him for months and months. And so the Prophet Muhammad predicted that uh, Constantinople, Constantinia, would become a Muslim city. And so as soon as the Prophet Muhammad died, the people didn't want, a lot of them didn't want to be in Medina anymore. Some could never leave Medina. Some couldn't stand it. Bilal, who called the Adhan, he said, I just can't call the Adhan and live in the city of Medina without the Messenger of Allah living. I just can't do it. And um, 
so he actually sent, he was actually, this is the, the uh, African, formerly enslaved Ethiopian man that I was talking about last week on the podcast. He was made the, the governor of one of the provinces that where the Muslims were the authorities. And so he came back one time to Medina and he called the Adhan and people just came out of their houses weeping because it reminded them of when the messenger of Allah lived there. So a lot of, some people stayed and couldn't leave and some people leaved and couldn't stay. You know, they had this profound attachment to the messenger of Allah who passed away and so to the prophet Muhammad. And so, uh, Abu Ayyub, Al-Ansari, Abu Ayyub said, okay, the Prophet Muhammad predicted that that would be a Muslim place, so let's go there. And on his way there, but he was an elder man, he was in his 80s, some say he was in his 80s. And as they were traveling, he could feel death approaching. And so he said, if I die on this trip, bury me inside the walls of the city of Constantinople. And so the companions did. And it didn't become a Muslim city for another what, 600 years? It took a long time. Uh, and so then when they came, uh, they had a dream about where he, one of the great people had a dream about where he was buried and they actually found him and they exhumed, they exhumed his remains and they built a proper like mausoleum for him. So there's his resting place and uh, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful it's so beautiful and also there's a mosque there and they actually had relics of the prophet muhammad so the peace be upon him when the prophet muhammad passed i mean this is 1400 years ago and the muslims are masters at keeping and maintaining tradition and so they have chains of inheritance and chains even of narration. So all the things that we know to be true of the prophet about his wives about his family about his companions it's like you have to know who said this and who who was the keeper of this story or this saying or this fact or this occurrence. And in order for it to be considered unanimous, like it's got to be multiple people that heard it and saw it. And there's just not another system of history that's this extensive. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. Like the things that we call history about America or about wars and things like that, um, those would be in the in the balance or in the spectrum of reliability. Those would be weak narrations of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Like there's just not another system on earth of history that's preserved in this way. And there are also relics. And so there are things that were owned by the Prophet Muhammad and actually hairs from his beard. Um, and that, you know, there might be people that don't understand that, that that's not part of their legacy or their tradition or whatever. Even some Muslims are like, how do we know? I'm like, okay, you, that's fine. But there are relics that we know the families that have kept these things. Um, and like we know every single name of every single person and that's what they've done their entire family's existence. And this is this legacy of being the caretakers of these relics. And so uh, one of the beard hairs of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was there. And so... We went and prayed there and visited there and you can hang out with the kids and there's all kind of cafes that are open late, you know, and so we hung out and chilled. And so it's just been a beautiful experience and, you know, I actually want to shout somebody out. I didn't ask his permission, but 
I have a really dear friend. When I did the live from Istanbul concert, um, uh, one of the we did a, a virtual VIP thing, and we sat up in this meet and greet with people that bought that bought that package, and we talked legitimately for five hours. I think we limited it to thirty or something like that. Uh, legitimately talked for five hours. Um, last word, my DJ. Um, he was the one kind of like administering the Zoom conference. And he was like, man, I had to go eat and come back. I was like getting tired. I was getting like low blood sugar. <laughs> He's like, man, I had to go eat and come back. And y'all were still talking legitimately five hours. And one of the guys said, and this happens a lot. He's like, man, I just really feel like drawn to Islam. What should I do? And so, you know, if, if it feels to me like people are serious, I'll start communicating with them directly. And we, alhamdulillah, we've had a number of people become Muslim. And me and my wife for like five years, had a, my wife's a therapist. I've said that a thousand times on this podcast. But we had a communities that were an intentional kind of community space that we had for um, helping people access the Islamic tradition and making space for people and helping people convert or helping people come back to Islam or lifelong Muslims just feeling like they wanted community that they weren't getting at the mosque or just, you know, uh, community servants. So there's people that serve at the mosque every week, their whole life. There's a man named uh, Mujahid Nathim, really dear man, beautiful man. I mean, he's been serving at the mosque in North Minneapolis for the whole time I've been Muslim. I've been Muslim 30 years. That man's been serving the entire time. He's maybe five years older than me or something. And so like when he comes around, like he doesn't need anybody to fortify his Islam, but it's like you serve everybody. So when you come here, you get served. We got a cold towel for you soaked in eucalyptus when it's, when it's cold or when it's hot outside. Uh, when you come in here and it's cold outside, you got a, a warm hot towel. We bought a towel heater. You got a warm towel waiting for you that's been uh, soaked in lavender that's ready for you when you get here. You know what I'm saying? And we're going to serve you tea and we're just going to, you know, we're going to care for you for a change. And, um, you know, women that have been serving in the community and stuff. So me and my wife did that for like five years. So we had a number of people convert with us and we try to support them. And sometimes I'll even help people just get like on ramped, like on board with the basics. Like I, you know, I'm not a scholar of this religion, but I can help a person learn the basic theology. I can help a person learn the basics of washing and praying. And if somebody wants to become Muslim, I can facilitate that for them. You know, we used to do ceremonies for people. And you can, it's very simple. All you have to just say is, I, I witnessed that nothing is God. It's none of these conceptions and none of people's ideas, only the unseen universal source of everything. That's the only thing that's God. God's not a thing. God's not a person. God's not somebody's ideology. Nothing, there's no substitute except for Allah. There's no, there isn't God, but there's Allah. There's la ilaha illallah. And they and witness that the Prophet Muhammad is one of the messengers of God. And basically say, like, I'm accepting this truth. And then people are, and then you try to like, how much of this religion can I can I figure out how to live, you know? And we all have struggles. And, you know, so just to be there with people through that process. And man, <laughs> we had this lady convert one time. 
said, you know, she was coming around with her boyfriend. She had a Muslim boyfriend. And, you know, we're not supposed to do the boyfriend thing and the Islam girlfriend thing. But people do it. I mean, this is a reality. Like, people do it all the time. Just like every other group has, you know, your things that you want to do. If you're in a social justice thing, there's all kind of stuff you want to do. But you use your iPhone and your iPhone is made by slaves. You know what I'm saying? Or if you're a conservative, uh, you know, it's like all kind of stuff. We're all, if you're a conservative, like America, pro-America nationalist, you buy all kind of stuff that was made in all kind of, you know, that supports all kind of stuff. And, you know, you could be very pro-Palestine and then... Every year you break your fast with dates that are, you know, the, the uh, colonizers, the conquering, the occupiers. You know what I'm saying? That we're buying dates from occupiers who stole those trees from Palestinians. It's, we all have contradictions, man. We all live with contradictions. It's part of it, you know. It's part of the, the, the tension that keeps us alive and keeps us going, you know, to try to be people that, are, that live what we believe as much as possible. And that's what you need. That's part of what you need community for, you know, to lean on each other, to be inspirations for each other, and then to help console each other when it's like, damn it, man, I'm I'm really struggling to live what I believe, and like, yeah, we all are, and that's part of what how we support each other and and love each other and care for each other, and just be there for each other, man. And like, you're not alone in striving. You're not, and so, you know, we compete with each other for what's good. And you're also not alone in falling short. And like, you know, no judgment, man. We're all struggling, you know. That's the best of what community can be. And so this lady came and, and um, she very traditionally Minnesotan. And, and she said, my parents want to come. And so her very like white, uh, you know, rural parents came. And I said, okay, normally here we serve this Moroccan mint tea that I was taught how to make. But what's your parents' favorite thing? It was cold outside. She said, man, they really love like traditional Minnesotan, uh, what do they call that? Apple, what do they call that? Apple cider. Apple cider. Yeah, apple cider. So I'm like, man, okay. All right. So I started calling all of the Minnesota elders that I know. How do we make really authentic apple cider? I said, okay, we're going to serve that to everybody when your parents come. We're going to serve their favorite thing. And I got into it, man. I spent the whole week. I don't think I did every, anything else that week. I, I realized how many apples you actually need to produce apple cider. And I got my hands on these big pots and I got the right apples. I figured, okay, I'm going to get the most authentic, you know, apples, organic, local, you know, sourced joints. So I got the best apples and I'm got the best recipes and figured out, you know, and I tried a small, uh, a small test batch and I figured out how to get, man, let me tell you, this apple cider was slamming. Like it was next level. Learn how to strain it, how to sift it. You know what I'm saying? Man. And, and I, I, I spent, I started the night before making the apple cider. I got the, the fresh organic cinnamon, all of that stuff man came in there and we facilitated we had a beautiful gathering for this lady and she became Muslim and you know it's a white lady that like I don't even know if people she didn't change her name I, I don't know if she wears hijab or not you know what I mean but I know that she believes and I know that she's in solidarity with the Muslims all over the world and I know that she already had that in her to be in solidarity with oppressed people 
you know, they're like, I want to be on the, I'm always on the side of the, of the oppressed, always. I don't care who, and, and the verse in the Quran says, stand out firmly for justice, even if it's against yourself. And even if it's against people that look like you, and even if it's against your family, and don't let your biases sway you in doing justice and, and being fair and being moderate and being true. So it's like such a beautiful statement, you know? And she said, man, that's how, I, that, I, that's how I've always wanted to be. And it's like, yeah, man, I've, I, that's your nature. That's the fitra, that uh, becoming a Muslim is an affirmation of that. And everything else, all other allegiances and identities are going to be after that. There's no allegiance. All of my allegiances will be through my allegiance to the source of all meaning, to the source of it all, who is divinely and infinitely just and wise and loving and powerful and knowing and caring and... You know, that's that's going to be my first. And then myself and my identity will first be as a natural human being that's created by the divine and, 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 and at one with the human family and at one with all of creation. You know, that's who I that's who I am. And that's what we believe about the Islamic tradition, that it that the outward practice is there to make us that way, to make us to in to, to make us live and help us. Uh, caress us into living and sometimes hurt us and sometimes drag us kicking and screaming into doing what's right. You know, the Prophet Muhammad said, when all this dies away and it's just when all of these material things die away, we talk about the afterlife. And that's really what it's about, that all these things die away. You know, people die. MF Doom died. But is he dead? No. You know, uh, Malcolm X did all these beautiful things and they shot and killed him, but they, they killed his body in the material sense. They defeated him. But is he defeated? No. You know, and then uh, his wife, Dr. Betty Shabazz, lived with the trauma of, of, in the family, you know, and she passed away also. And we believe her to be a martyr as well. That nobody shot her, but, you know, she died in the home, in her family home, where uh, one of the grandchildren of Malcolm. Uh, was lighting things on fire and the, the house caught on fire. You know, and that's one of the things that traumatized people do to cope with their trauma and their pain is set things on fire. I mean, it's just a true part of the human condition that that's something that a person who feels powerless and hurt and doesn't have a language and an outlet and a way of understanding and processing and metabolizing what's happened to them, you know, that sometimes people light fire. So, I mean, she is a martyr as well. Dr. Betty Shabazz is also a martyr. So she physically is dying. Is she dead? No. Not, not even, not, you know, and yes, her body is. But, and eventually all of this dies away. All of the material dies away. But is, are we done? No. We're actually alive in the world of meaning. And that's what the afterlife is. And so the, the and, and the people who were intentional about loving and serving and being just and refining self and developing self and being natural and being forces of good, those people have a life after this. You, you know, I'm saying like people say, well, like, don't talk to me by heaven and hell and the day of judgment and sin and the garden and the fire and all. Okay. 
All right. But we all know that there are people who seem like in their life they got away with being horrible people. They seem like they got away with it. Nobody ever charged them. Nobody ever gave them the electric chair. Nobody ever canceled them. Nobody ever. There are people that have done horrible things that in their body and in their physical reality, nobody ever caught on to them. But are those people, are, are they the true winners? Are those people the winners? Because if you don't believe they're the winners, it's because we believe in what the Muslims would call the akhirah, which means after all this material stuff dies. Now, does that mean that we just stand for oppression and suffering in this world and in this life? No. What does the Quran say? Stand out firmly for justice, even if it's against yourself and your own people. And don't let your biases sway you. You know, and Allah, Allah doesn't love oppressors. That's a reality, you know. And, you know, so uh, the, the, those people, and in that time, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, says that we will wonder in that moment at people who were dragged into the best of all realities at, in that life, kicking and screaming, almost like in chains. And he was talking about, and our scholars tell us, he was talking about the Sharia. Because so much about the Sharia is like times like Ramadan, you got to fast. So somebody like me, you know, who I'm like weak. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm fat. I'm, you know, for 20 years, I haven't had a job. I've never worked I, for 20 years. Before that, I worked at UPS and I did all types of backbreaking labor and work. And, you know, I did have crappy jobs for a strong 10 years. I've been on my own since I was 17. You know, and I've also been married since I was 17. So I've had other people to to provide for. I didn't graduate from high school. I did all that without a high school degree. I'm also partially blind. You know, so I've had, yeah, I had some challenge. So You know what I'm saying? But I'm saying for most of my adult life, I haven't had a boss. I've done but mostly what I want to do, you know. And that, that has my, it's meant that my discipline game has to really come from something strong and powerful and mighty. You know, I've been my I've been my own boss for most of my adult life. And so something like Ramadan comes. That's why I hate to see it go, because when Ramadan comes, it's like, no, these are the guidelines and it's not up to you. You will not take a sip of water after this time. You will not do these things that are normally just fine, you know, and but it teaches me about myself that I do have the power I do have the, I cannot say, well, you know, I wish I was, I wish I was like those people who can just do what they, keep their promises to themselves. So anyway, I'm, I'm off on a crazy tangent as usual, but uh, to, to tie it back, you know, uh, one of the, one of the people that was in that live from Istanbul VIP came to me and said, um, you know, he just messaged me and said, I really feel drawn to Islam. And I had some back and forth and I could just sense like this guy is serious. And um, so I'm not going to say his whole name. I don't think I already said his whole name. I hope not. But I just want to give a shout out to my man, Dan, because Dan is a guy who, you know, and, and Dan, you don't have to tell people that I'm talking about you because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some things. But man, this brother, we started talking and, you know, he's a hip hop fan. This guy was, comes from very, very deep, he's a white guy, very deep generational trauma. 
profound. I won't even, it's, it's not all even speakable, but, you know, really deep generational trauma and a lot of addiction that goes along with that. You know, this is a brother that was in prison and in prison, he was in a, a white gang in prison and he's a hip hop lover and loves my music and, you know, and ended up becoming a Muslim. We started talking about Islam, we started communicating and he became a Muslim and he doesn't even know any Muslims. <laughs> and this is a guy who struggled hard to get clean and sober off the hardest drugs there are, which was, I mean, he was addicted to the hardest drugs there are. You name a drug, this guy was, was hooked on it before I met him and he had already done the program and things like that and prison and halfway houses and all this kind of stuff. And this guy, when I met him, he had already built a lot of his life back. He has an amazing wife who did not come with him into Islam, but supports him. You know what I'm saying? He's got two kids and one of them has really serious uh, like medical and developmental needs. And then during the time that he became Muslim, uh, has had a lot of challenges, man. Like this guy, like a lot of people in the pandemic, he lost his job. He went from having a nice, reliable job where he could take care of his family and lost his job. And he's a convict. He's an ex-con. And also his dad died. And also his mother is still really struggling with, addi with addiction and really struggling. It's really tough. You know, people in the family got COVID, lost his job. And then also start realizing that one of the prescription drugs that was um, prescribed, that he had developed a dependency on that. And so he became Muslim uh, two years ago. That was two years ago. He became Muslim and it was like Ramadan was coming up and he struggled and he couldn't necessarily do it. He fasted a little bit and, you know, but was still really struggling because that prescription drug, I mean, those things are really tough, man. Those things are really challenging. And then even the second year, he fasted a little bit more, but it was still really tough. And all of these really, really, really hard things going on in life. And this particular year, I mean, his wife had medical trouble. His son had medical trouble. Uh, his father died. His mother is struggling. This guy, during the course of the year, said, I'm having a, like, like Islam and Ramadan made him realize, I couldn't fast because I developed a dependency on this prescription drug that was prescribed. But he said, man, I got to get off this thing. And over the course of the year, because of Ramadan, he did it. And this year, this man fasted all year long. And he's 40 years old and went to the mosque. And this is like a dude who used to be, you know, and he was like, man, I, I got in the gang in prison, not because I felt like I wanted to be a white supremacist, but I mean, prison is prison. And like the society in prison is like, unless you are some extreme case, you know what I'm saying? You have to be with your racial group. It's just how, just the way prison is. It's kind of a microcosm of America. You know what I mean? Now, there are white people in prison. If a white person in prison is Muslim, then you, you don't have to be in the white gang. You're with the Muslims. That's your, that's your tribe in prison. You know what I'm saying? But, man, these are the types of stories and, like, these are the types of things that, like, you know. And then also when we got to, and I messaged him the last night. 
here of Ramadan because it was still Ramadan in America. And like, I've just been overwhelmed with what I've been blessed to see in this guy's life, man. Like he did all of this, not even knowing any Muslims, just me and him trading voice notes. You know what I'm saying? We trade voice notes. We've only even, like we met each other once. We hung out one time, maybe two times. Like, you know, I was in his home state. You know what I mean? We hung out once. But I mean, just the power of what this tradition can do for people. And I've seen this over and over and over again. So it's like, man, I'm celebrating because I got kids. And it's part of the religion that you, you're you happy on the eat, even though I'm sad to see Ramadan go. But then also my daughter's birthday. And right there with those things, man, is just like all signs point to this being the worst year of this guy's life after everything he's been through. And there were times where it's really real. It's just like, man, I don't know why Allah... This is a brand new Muslim saying, I don't know why Allah is choosing to test me in these ways, but there's, I know there's wisdom in it. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know what's at the end of our lives, but Allah does. And so I don't even know what the meaning of this is, but I know that Allah does. And so I'm just going to be patient. And I'm just going to wake up every day and try to do what's best. And if you let him tell it, he's going to tell you all the slip-ups that he made and all the times when he got frustrated that he wishes he didn't and all this other stuff. But I'm saying I was blessed to witness in the life of this person a transformation where what would have been one of the lowest point, one of the hardest years of his life. And he said that, like, man, getting kicking this drug while going through all of this stuff because... It's one thing when you hit your rock bottom, you know what I mean? Like when you're in the streets and you hit rock bottom, you know rock bottom is coming. If you're a soldier if with your drugs, like there are soldiers, you know what I'm saying? Bubs from the wire, like soldiers, you know what I'm saying? Who's the white dude that, that uh, Bubs was kicking it with? Bubbles from the wire, you know what I'm saying? Like the soldiers, like you know, you're rock bottom, you know it's coming. But then this guy rebuilt his life. You know what I mean? He got through the thing. He got a job. He got married. He married a nice, like, lady with good character. He didn't marry somebody from the street. He married some, and they're good, good people in the street. He's one of them. And a lot of my best friends are among those people. But like, man, this guy got his whole life together and it looked like it was all going great. They had a son and they, you know what I'm saying? And, oh, his dog died. <laughs> like all of this stuff like man it's one thing to have a rock bottom it's another thing to think you hit rock bottom and then build your life and then that falls apart and then their son turns out has this like de developmental disability thing and he's you know and like even within that condition that his son has it's a particular like it's a particularly rare, harsh form of it. And this guy in the midst of all of that, not with a whole lot of, he didn't go on a retreat. He didn't go like, I'm saying in the midst of 24 seven, serving his family, caring for people, going through all of this stuff, struggling with all of the day-to-day -day stuff of life, not knowing a, a, another Muslim, not having any community support, nothing, just got this rapper on the other end of the world trading voice notes. But the, the transformation that I got to witness in this person and the fact that he 
over the course of the year, turned 40 and kicked this prescription drug so that he could fast Ramadan and fasted every single day. And I've seen this happen with people over and over and over and over again. And it's not the only time that that happens. You know what I'm saying? It's not the only tradition. It's not the, you know what I'm saying? But this is something that I've seen over and over. So much love to my man, Dan. You know, it's just a very, very beautiful thing. And I'm very grateful for it. So Ramadan has come and left. We just finished the second day of the festival, of the celebration. Tomorrow for us, Sunday, will be the third day. And, um, you know, hopefully we're able to get out and celebrate and make it feel festive. But I just want to say to everybody that listened through these and shared these with me, I'm really deeply grateful to you for being here for this part of the journey. Because what, what, what I've always felt and what I've always suspected, I feel like this has proven it to me that the, the bond that we have is a real one. It's a sincere one. It comes from our shared humanity. It comes from our shared human experience and a very deep and profound connection we have. And I'll just share something else with you, you know, from the Islamic tradition. The Muslims believe that the human being has five stages of life. Uh, we have we believe that we were somewhere before we came into this phase. This phase of the material world, we call it the dunya, or the Quran calls it the dunya. The dunya is the time that we're in now where there's a material reality, and it's the worst and most challenging and most difficult and most trying of them all. It's the purpose of the dunya, actually, is to test and to try us. And it doesn't mean that everything in this life, it's called the, this world is called the dunya, it's also called al-alamin, the universe. And al-alamin are also things that point to the divine. And so we, we look at the, you know, we, in the night, you look up in the night sky and you see this beautiful universe and solar system and all of these stars and all of these amazing things that are seen in telescopes. All of that is pointing to the divine. The amazing things that we see in our own physical creation that are just profoundly uh, beautiful, all of those things point to the divine, you know. Um, and so it's, it's all of that. But the dunya means that this is a place where we forget the purpose of our lives. We forget the meaning of our lives. There's de deprivation. We're deprived of a lot of times our connection to the meaning of it all. This is a place where people can lie and get away with it in this realm. And a lot of people do. There's a lot of just rapists and slave owners and, you know, uh, mass murderers and people that die never having gotten justice in this life. That's the reality of this life that we live in. And some people abuse others and it, and it makes them and get rich doing it. And they just have their way, you know. And that's one of the big questions. It's like it, to know whether or not you're a spiritual person, to know whether or not you believe in an afterlife, even if you might not believe it in the frames that you've been taught or that, uh, that from other, you know, Western dominant narratives. But do you believe that those people are actually winners? Because if you do, then we're not in the same group. We don't, we don't feel the same way about life. But if you know that even if those people in the material sense in this life seems like they won, but in some way, if you believe in karma, 
if you believe that somehow there is accountability, if somehow people that do that that strive to be and do beautiful, be beautiful people and do beautiful things, to be and do good, if you believe that those people have a ult ultimately in some way are the winners, even if it doesn't seem like it in this material life, then you're a spirit. That's one of the signs that you're a spiritual person and you know that that this material world isn't all there is that's really just all it comes down to that's the the basis of it that's the beginning of it and so you know we believe that after this life there's a life in the grave and that there's a life of uh reckoning when all of the truths come out when every truth comes out when all of the the beautiful secrets about you you know, all of the beautiful things that you actually inherited, you know, all of the, the, the amazing secrets about you, all the times that you did good and nobody knew it, all of the times that you forgave people when there was no reason to other than you're just fucking beautiful, all the times that you could have gotten over on somebody, but you didn't. All of the times that you had a good opinion of people when everybody else was was dissing them. All the times you hugged somebody or you just smiled at somebody or you went on the record for somebody or you went hungry so that that person could eat or you served that per you served somebody else even though you were going through hell. That all comes out. And then also all the times that we wronged ourselves and wronged other people and wronged creation and wronged the whatever, all the times that we were ugly, that also all comes out. There's a time when, when there's no more deception. It's, it's just straight truth. That time is called Yawmiddin, Yawmilqiyama, the day of standing, the day of reckoning, the day of judgment, the day of truth-telling, the day of revelation. All of that stuff comes out and there's no more sneaking and there's no more BSing and there's no more lying. That day, that time, that period, that truth is coming. All of us are going to that, you know, and all the lies that people told about you just come, it's known and no one can deny it. You know what I mean? And so then after that, then we have our ultimate state, our permanent state of rest of where we are. Like where is our soul and what state is our soul in after that? And the people who strived to do beauty for beauty's sake are not in the same state or situation as the people who were genuinely hateful. Like there are genuinely hateful people. And it's just not the same for, for everybody. And there are varying degrees of it all. You know, it's not as simple as like, if you did this, you go to hell, you burn forever and that's it. And it's not that simple. And a lot of people reject religion because of that. Because they think there's this oversimplicity of like, if this was your identity, or if you did this thing, or if you had this habit, then you burn forever. I'm sorry, that's not what that's not what Islam says. It's just not. There are a lot of people who outwardly seemed horrible, but their secret is that they were actually beautiful. And there are a lot of people that seemed beautiful, and their reality is different. And we don't know who we are until everything is even shown to us. There are good signs. You know what I'm saying? If you have a deep sense of gratitude, 
like you just feel grateful, that's a really good sign. You know, if there's part of you that feels like, I know I want to be good and I trust that, but I also am suspicious of my own self-righteousness and laziness. And I know that I've gotten away with some BS and I know that I've, you know, snuck around some things. And like, I'm, I feel like I want to right my own problems. That's called nefsaliwama, which means that's the self-accusing self, the, 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 the one who takes themselves to account. That's a really good sign. That's a sign of sincerity. Like, no, like yeah, these people think I'm great, and I do believe that there's a strong uh, proclivity for goodness in me, but I also know what I've done. I know what I did last summer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I know. And I don't just let myself off the hook for that. I also don't walk around with shame, and I'm not... I'm not you know, because I know that the source loves to forgive. So I walk with a sense of sober humility around the things, my neediness and the things that I do that aren't right. And the ways, you know, that my harshness and my lack of forgiving myself and others and like all my harshness, harshness breeds harshness and softness and, and love and beauty and warmth breathes warmth, breeds warmth. So that's what this process is about, you know. And so that's the, so these are the five lives of man, of a human being. The life in this world is one. The life of the grave is another one. The, li the, li the life of uh, the truth coming out, you know, the reckoning, that's another one. And then also the permanent station of our, of our, final, when it all becomes known, like who you are, and you're not going to know how amazing you were meant to be until that time. That's when you'll really know what you are. And, and I will know too, you know, and we're more beautiful than we know, more, we're more powerful than we know, we're more capable than we know, uh, because the creator made us this way, because the source of it all made us this way. And that's the reality. Now, what I didn't talk about yet is the fact is the the fact that there was a life before all of this. The Quran describes a time when all of the human souls that will ever be, that that ever lived, that are living now, and ever will live, that we were all together in a time of divine witnessing. That there was a time that there were there was no deception, there was no deprivation, it wasn't darkness, it was all beauty, it was all divine witnessing. That's why when we come into this life and we're we have to run up against lies and injustice. Like we are naturally incensed by that. We naturally hate it. And we're like, what the hell is going on? You know what I mean? Our, the, like our crying out, you know, for justice and for righteousness and for beauty and for goodness. Like our soul naturally knows to do that. That's why when babies come into this world, like they come in, pure. They come in, you know, like, like little angels, like they're beautiful. They also have the human condition, you know what I'm saying? So, so it's like, but when babies come, they're beautiful. All little babies are like that, you know, and we believe that, you know, that, that they entered this world through, you know, and they're entering into this world is violent. Amir Suleiman says, you know, uh, who would want their heart broken? But now that mine has been split open, I wonder who would want their heart closed. Amir Suleiman, my God. Who would want their heart broken? And I've been blessed to know Amir well enough 
that I know some of the heartbreaking things that he's been through. I don't know them all, but I've been blessed to see some of them up close and personal in a way where he's like, yo, Allah just showed this to you because he doesn't complain about them. Amir is a special man. Amir Suleiman, the great poet. Who would want their heart broken? But now that mine has been split open, I wonder who would want their heart closed? Can you drink from the coconut without striking it? Can you smell the oud without lighting it? There's so much beauty in breaking, so much beauty in violence. Can you birth without screaming and bleeding and crying? I've been lying, living on the outside of life. And until I uh, broke my teeth on a hard, until I mashed my hardened teeth on an even hardened shell, to realize that, you know, this is called of beauty and breaking. Go and check out Amir Suleiman of beauty and breaking. But this is the reality. So like we come into this world uh, from the time before this. And what, the, what Allah describes in the Quran is that there was a time when all of the souls were there and that the divine spoke to us. The divine source of it all, not a person, not a thing, not an ideology, not somebody's idea, not somebody's demands of you, not to like... The, the unseen source of it all who's with you in your quiet, most private moments. That is Allah and la ilaha illallah and nothing should be seen as God except for Allah, except for that unseen, intimate reality that like if you're grateful, who's the source of gratitude? When we say alhamdulillah, we're saying Allah is the object of our gratitude. So if you're grateful, if you're just grateful, to who? To your mom, to the white man, to the government, to hip-hop, to your country, to, like, what are you grateful, ultimately? What's the object of your gratitude? You can't be grateful without an object. You're saying, so I'm just generally grateful. I'm grateful to the universe. Well, do you mean the, the planets and the molecules or do you mean something out there that's beyond what can be seen and grasped and, but, you, but that intimately you know? Because that thing is what we're talking about when we say Allah. So if you know that reality, then you believe in Allah. You know Allah and it's your right to know Allah. And so say like, Alhamdulillah. That's what we say, Alhamdulillah. Allah is the object of gratitude. And so... All of us were collectively spoken to. We were addressed collectively. And Allah said, Alastu birabbukum, am I not your evolver? Am I not the one who's intimately with you and uh, along every step of your journey, of your being, of your existence? You know what I'm saying? Our mother is the most important human being on earth to us. You know, and uh, because of the relationship that's ushered with you know, the prophets and the messengers, they actually even have a type of precedent. But the the person who's in this world that's most important to us is our mother. That's the womb from from whose womb we were birthed into this life. And, and we come into this life with a lot of trauma off top. It's It's painful. And dying is painful. And we don't look forward to the pain of death you know, but we're preparing for it. And ultimately we're preparing because all of this is going to die and go away. And with it, the lies and deception of it all are going to lie, are going to die and go away. And it will be nothing but us and the truth. And so 
we are described a time that we were together and Allah, the divine unseen, spoke to us and said, Am I not the one who's with you in every step of your journey? Our mother's the most important person, but at some point either we die or our mothers die or we're separated or estranged from them. Some people are stolen from their mothers. Some people are, you know, some people's mothers are all types of situations, but our mother's not with us every single step of the journey. They're with us in our heart, but mom's not there all the time. Mama's not always there. Our wife, our husband, our beloved, our, our friends are the, not always there. Sometimes, you know, you even have a feeling, even with mom sometimes, like there's a feeling that like the hearts turn away from each other. And it's like, oh man, on a heart level, maybe I was just abandoned. Now I'm alone in my in my feeling. But there's a companion, but the ultimate unseen divine is always the companion. That's and we say Rab, R-A-B, Rab. So it's translated sometimes in English as Lord, you know, but there's a lot of baggage around that word. Like we gotta go back to this Arabic and learn like this language, like what's really being talked about. The one who is intimately with us and overseeing our development in every single moment all the twists and the turns and the nuances of the journey of existing that the, the Allah is the one that's with us in every moment am I not your Lord because we forget you know what I'm saying something comes like things happen and we forget we forget the world of meaning sometimes something's directly in my face maybe some unvirtuous money or the opportunity to, ex to experience something that seems like it's going to give me joy, but it's actually a violation. And all of the things that are haram, they're violations of the world of meaning, even though there's joy in them in the moment. And everybody, we can, people don't like the word sin, but it's like we all know there's things that, are, that might give us a sense of joy in the moment, but ultimately they're harmful. Like we're harming somebody. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Ultimately, they're harmful. These are the things that are haram. And we've all done, we all have a bunch of them if we're real with ourselves. You know, like if we're really real with ourselves, we all got a, a laundry list of times that we've violated ourselves and others in, in one way or another. If I speak about a person in their absence in a way that dishonors them, in a way that I don't have the right to do. Like, it's not because they're oppressing other people. Allah says, uh, the Quran says, Allah says, Allah doesn't love that evil be spoken of other people unless there's oppression happening. You got to speak out against oppression in the times where it actually matters. We don't just run around posting it all over social media, but if, if somebody is oppressing somebody else, and oppression is a very specific reality. It's different than making mistakes. It's different than... Oppression is a very specific thing, and it requires a very specific response. And we oppress ourselves when we do wrong. If I say something I'm not supposed to say, I'm oppressing my tongue. And what we believe is that our, our limbs actually speak. She made me do this thing that was bad, or he made me do that, you know. And the hands, the hands are going to speak. He made me slap a child. He made me grab him by the, you know what I'm saying? Seriously. He made me do this thing. He made, the feet will testify. The tongue will testify. The ears testify. 
And a lot of us deny this stuff. Be, a lot of us just got to be real about the fact we deny these things because we just don't want to face the reality that I'm going to face the reality. We don't want to face the truth that we're going to have to face the truth. Got to face the music. And it's not with another person. So people say like, well, religion is just a trick to, to make you a slave to another person. It can be used that way, but so can music and so can sex and so can love and so can money and so can business and so can creativity and so can social work and so can organizing and so can everything can be used that way doesn't change the fact that there is an unseen, ultimate reality that knows it all and that's responsible for it all and that ultimately we're going to face the music. We're going to just face the truth. Not necessary, not in somebody else's court, but we're going to face the, the one who knows every single nuanced detail of everything, good, bad, and ugly. We're going to face it all. That's a, that is a reality. And so uh, what we're talking about now, though, is the, the fact that before we came into this life, we were, and, and Allah says to all of us collectively, because we're going to get in this life and we're going to forget and we're going to lose track. And so, uh, and, and what's said in the Quran is that the entire human family uh, announced together Bella shahidna, certainly we bear witness. Now that's a time when it's all divine witnessing and beauty, and there's no deprivation, there's no ugliness, there's no lying, there's no deception, there's none of that. And then we come into this life where there's it's filled with that. Everything good can be corrupted and corrupting. Everything needs to be treated with concern and with care. Everything, you got to be careful of everything. And so we have this thing in Islam called taqwa. Taqwa means, now they'll translate it. I'm going to tell you what it means first. But it means to guard and to take it seriously, to take our relationship with, with the divine world of meaning very seriously and to guard in every moment. Because everything that seems good can have uh, the opportunity to go all the way bad. Everything that seems bad can have some good in it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and when you start speaking about the language of spirituality, you're dealing with a universal language. So you start to see the parallels in the different traditions. You know, And I will say that as Muslims, what feels very apparent to me, I wasn't born into this religion. I adopted this religion. I converted to it. You know, I adopted it. And it seems to me that it's the one that is complete and encompasses it all. And I say that with deep love and profound respect for all of the traditions and all the people that strive to live inside them. I believe that people are supposed to be in their religions. I don't believe in a world where, like Allah describes that there will be people of different religions and we will say to them, for you as your religion is for me as mine. I'm not going to worship what you worship and you don't worship what I worship. You know, but then there are also people in other traditions that like, let's come to an agreement between all of us that what we're striving to worship is the unseen divine reality. So people in other religions, there's going to be, there's always going to be people in different religions. And Allah says one of the things, one of the purposes of that in this life is that we challenge each other and we, we test each other. And Allah sometimes, uh, you know, uses us as means to test and challenge each other. 
to see who's who and what's what. So like that's part of it. But taqwa, they translate it. Sometimes they'll, they'll translate it as God consciousness or fear of God. And though again, the words like that have a lot of baggage that have nothing to do with what's meant in the Quran. And so we come into these lives that we live and we have to take it really seriously because it can go bad really quickly and it can go very, very far off course. And we can end up somewhere very different from where we meant to end up. And a lot of times that's the case. And so that's why there's guidance. That's why the spiritual path exists, because it's a reminder. It's, it's a reminder of who and what we really are. We're really souls that are, that are breathed into being by the divine. And we also are a heart that's experiencing sensations and stations and states and emotions. And your heart is real. Like, you know, the same way your heart is real. And when somebody says like, oh, you don't need therapy and you don't need to all this, med just be strong and just, you know what I mean? Like, don't deal with emotion. I don't deal with emotions. I deal with logic. You're lying because your heart is real and your heart deserves attention. And your emotions are, are a part of your reality. And also your soul is real. And then, then you're also your, your intellect. And in this, in this society, and in this, we just reduce everything. If we're going to have to talk about an unseen part of the person, we just talk about their mind. We, and we, we love people's mind. But the mind can also go very wrong. You know what I'm saying? And, and along with the mind, there's also a heart. And somebody's not weak for experiencing their emotions and feeling their feelings. It's part of how we were created. That's what a human being is. And also we're a soul. And that soul needs to be connected. That soul needs to be reminded, needs to be fed, needs to be acknowledged, needs to be nurtured. Need That is a divinely given need that every human being has. And that's why every human being, regardless of what they think, who they are, how they identify, there's a certain level of dignity that is just, that is not negotiable with a human being. Even if we disagree with somebody to the utmost, a human being has certain dignity because of the fact that they are, uh, they're walking around as a soul inside of their body, along with their intellect, along with no matter how hard their heart is, they are a soul, there's a soul in there, you know? And so, uh, and the human being also, it has an ego. That's part of what we are in this particular stage of, of life, you know? We're an intellect, we're a soul, we're, and then we're a body, and our bodies also have rights. They even have rights over our souls. Our souls live in these bodies, and there's rent you have to pay. You got to work out, you got to eat, you got to drink, you got to sleep. Your body needs certain things. Your body needs healing. Your body needs safety, security, certain types of comforts. But all of that has to be taken very seriously. And so that's where the guidance comes from. That's why the Creator doesn't put us into these, the, this battlefield, this testing ground. Like this is the testing ground to see if we're given the ability to make choices, we're given the ability to fall, we're given the ability to fail, we're given the ability to forget, we're given the ability to be perverted and to go all the way off track and to make our own decisions and to decide who and what we want to be. And then we're given all this opportunity. We're also given reminders. And that's 
why we love the Qur'an, and that's why we love the people of Allah, the people who are walking reminders, the people who point us back and say like, yeah, yes, great food tastes great, and sex is amazing, and music is dope, and the sky is great, and uh, all of these things, and you know, yeah, all of this stuff, screens and technology and, uh, you know, all this stuff. Yes. But don't forget what it's really about. And don't forget that it all matters, that it matters. What we think matters, what we believe matters, what, how we feel about it matters. The states and stations of our hearts matter. Our guidance matters. Our soul matters. Our ego you know, and, and whether or not we're working hard on disciplining our ego matters, whether or not we're keeping. So what Islam is, is it's dealing with the reality of the garden of ourselves. You are in a beautiful garden of fruits and beauty and wonderment. That's who and what you are, what you are. But also there needs to be a, a fence around it. The garden has to have a fence. And so the, and this is what our scholar, what our teachers, some of our spiritual teachers tell us that, you know, the sharia, well, people say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. So I don't have rules. I don't believe in rules. No rules, no religion. Okay. Well, then how do we guard the garden of the spiritual self? You say, well, I'll know when something's good or bad. Not always. Think about it and just be real. Did something ever seem like it was good and it turns out that it was harmful? Allah says in the Quran, it may be that you love a thing that's, that's, that's horrible for you and you hate things that are good for you. This is the truth. Anybody that's raised children knows that. Anybody who has had to struggle with addiction knows that. Anybody that's, that's you know, done things that they thought they were good, that were good and realized like, man, that was really harmful, knows that we need guidance. Uh, because we're not always going to know. It, like we have to really learn what's coming from my ego, what's coming from my intellect, because my ego is my enemy and my intellect is limited. What's coming from this, my heart, because my heart actually is prone to different uh, states and, 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 and sensations. My heart turns, you know, it turns towards the light, turns towards the dark, it gets happy, it gets sad. It expands, it contracts. My heart goes through all different types of things. You know, my heart will incline towards somebody that, that smiles at me and gives me beautiful things and compliments me. And let the, people can win over my heart, you know, and, and people have emotional connections to things that are evil. But then we also have the soul. So we got all this stuff. So we need guidance. And where's that guidance going to come from? You know, and the fact that religion has been abused doesn't mean like the the uh, chaplain Shane, Imam Shane, my man says, there's counterfeit gold because of the fact that there's gold, fake gold, fool's gold. He always says things. He says things in very real wise people talk like that. They're able to say profound truths in really simple ways because they actually understand them. They can explain them to people like me. Chaplain Shane, Imam Shane, my man, he's going to tell me, stop shouting me out, man. <laughs> but my man Shane says, there's fool's gold because there's real gold. So just because there's fool's gold doesn't mean that there's not real gold. You know, the fact that there's fake spiritual 
guides, they're there because of the fact that there are real spiritual guides and they know that. You know what I'm saying? There's a counter there's counterfeit religion because of the fact that the creator actually has sent us. Now it's not a it's not a it's not a it's not a quick fix. Like, man, it's and again, I said last week, I said all the time, it's not an infomercial. I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm just trying to share. Like, you know, it's like everything else. You know, uh, if if you have a practice and you honor the practice, something will come of it. I can't tell you, I, you know, I teach a writing uh, workshop, Blood on Beats. I facilitate a writing workshop, Blood on Beats, how to die writing a song. You know, like I can tell people, I can't promise you. I'm not saying you sign up for this class and you go through this process and you you start a practice and you honor and you do all the stuff I'm telling you to do. You're also going to travel the world performing music with no one's permission for 20 years and feed your family doing it. And there's going to be people all over the world that listen to you talk about your religion for two hours every week and, and don't give you any negative comment. I can't promise you that. But I can say that all of the people that have submitted to a certain process and honor this process and make it a sacred ritual and they honor it, that if you do that, something will come. Whatever is meant for you will come. I could say that. And that's what I'm saying about, about Islam. It's complete. It's universal. What if, what if Allah is real? And what if Allah actually gave guidance for everybody? Uh, doesn't mean that if you do this thing, it's going to solve everything overnight. That's never been the claim. It's never. It's not the promise. It's not the. This isn't a sales. This isn't a sale, and it's the, That's not the hook. It's just that this is the ultimate. This is the truth that underlies it all, and there is a language for understanding that. There is a framework for that. Um. There is a community of people who share that language. There is a road. There is a roadmap, and it's not a stringent, strict, one size fits all thing. So it's not as simple as it's going to solve all your problems. It's also not as simple as you got to do things the way that I did it, uh, did them, and you're, you 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 got to follow this specific. You know, there are there's a there is a group of Muslims who say we're the only true Muslims. It's like everything else, man. You know, the, 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 the hardcore backpackers in hip hop, you know what I'm saying? You, hip hop's only hip hop if you, if it's this BPM and if you sample records from 1968 to 1979 and if you, you got to make it on this thing and you got to sample the drums and you can't sample drums from another hip hop producer and you just got to be like this. And if it's not this, it's not hip hop. Well, there's like that in everything. People that collect baseball cards have that. There's people that uh, do cosplay that are like that. There's comic book heads like that. There's uh, people that do model trains that think they're the only model train people and everybody else is fronting. Yeah, there's Muslims like that. And those people got a loud voice and they do have a sales pitch. Their thing is an oversimplified sales pitch. So yes, you're going to look online and people are going to tell you there's one Islamic ruling on this. You're only a Muslim if you do it like that. You're only a Muslim if you do it like that. And I'm here to tell you like, cool, that's a specific group of people. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. And I love those people. And I, a lot of my friends are like that. A lot of my friends, that's, you know, that's the type of, that's the vision of Islam. 
that is in power in Saudi Arabia. That's the vision of Islam that has a lot of oil money. That's the vision of Islam and version of Islam and expression of Islam. That yeah, if you go to Mecca, they're in power, they're in control. And like if you sit with the people that are controlling, but it's only been like that for a hundred years or two hundred years. You know, it's it's been like that a very short period of time. And before that, it was the Ottomans, and before that, it was somebody else, and before that. So, I mean, there's been multiple, you know, they're, they're the view of inversion of Islam that says our way is the only right way. That exists in every group of human beings. I'm not saying that the Muslims are perfect. I'm not saying that even that the Muslims are better than anybody else. And I'm certainly not saying that I'm better than you, but I'm saying there is an ultimate truth. And that, and, and so my goal with all of this has been to share that. And it's one of the things, and when I share it, because I'm a human being, it's tied up in the way that I see the world. So one of my friends said, well, man, the last episode of podcast, the truest thing I know, la ilaha illallah. I'm going to share that with my mom. Now, she's not going to agree with the way you understand race. I say, yeah, that is woven all through there because I'm a person. And so like my, my stuff is going to be, but you don't have to have the same political views as me. You don't have the same, have to have the same assessment of what's going on in space and time in the dunya. You don't have to have the same assessment. And I have teachers who don't have the same assessment of the dunya that I have. But those people know Allah and they know the Islamic tradition and they know what it is to be a human being and to struggle with oneself. And so I trust those people and I listen to them about that. I don't have to listen to them about everything. And I don't have to agree with them about every single thing. And as a Muslim, there's no one human living person that I have to give my allegiance to. There's not a political ruler. There's not a country. There's not a flag. There's not a teacher. There's not a church. There's not an organization. So when people say, you know, there's this great, uh, there's this great uh, British uh, Englishman, you know, uh, scholar. He converted to Islam. His name is Dr. Timothy Winter. And as a Muslim, they call him Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, M-U-R-A-D. Man, this man is amazing. I hope I can have him on the podcast. I only met him once. He's an amazing person, incredibly unique human being. You know, a white Englishman is just incredible. But somebody said, I never thought that I would join an organized religion. And apparently he said to them, it's not that organized. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not very organized. Like you're not joining a, a specific group unless there's a group that speaks to you. You know what I mean? There was a particular community that I came in, the community of Imam Wadathuddin Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, that came out of the... It's one of the evolutions of the nation of Islam. You know, that he embraced Sunni Orthodox Islam as it's understood around the world, but through our own lens and through our own frame of our assessment in the dunya, in, the, in space and time. And with our own culture, you know, that we, that we take the, the, uh, the, the core of this tradition and we live it with the, the circumstances that the Creator willed for us. And that was my first community, and I still see myself as part of that community. When the imam himself passed away, you know, I, I've traveled around the world and I've studied um, more of the classical Islamic tradition. And one of the places it led me was Turkey, and I, so I, I continue to do that. 
but I'll always see myself. But you don't have to be part of any particular group. It's just not like that. It's not like that. So when people say, um, you know, I don't, I'll never rock with a tradition, with a, with an organized religion. It's like, man, I understand what you're saying. It doesn't change what's being shared here. So these have been um, just an opportunity for me to share that. And uh, I wish I could do a better job, but I know I'm being sincere with you and I know you're being sincere with me. And so I love you. We'll be back next week with a dope guest, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, Allah willing, uh, we'll be back next week with a great guest and a great conversation. Thank you for being here for this. And if you're celebrating Eid, Eid Mubarak, may Allah give you a profound Eid full of blessing. And may the good practices that we were able to, and, and I, what I'm taking out of Ramadan is that I am the same person that did all of those things during the month of Ramadan. And to the degree to which I'm sad about Ramadan leaving, I have the ability, like it ultimately lies with me. How much of Ramadan do I hold on to? How much of the good practices that I picked up during Ramadan. I've proven to myself that I can do them because I've had different Ramadans with different degrees of uh, habits and practices and disciplines. So it really is up to me how much of Ramadan I carry in to the rest of the year. So may Allah give us that. May we be successful in that. And may we keep our promises to ourselves. And may we believe what the Creator says about us, you know, and not the one who denied us, and not the one who said they're not worthy of it, and not the one that said human beings shouldn't be able to make their own decisions. Just make them robots. Just keep, you know. And Allah said, I know what you don't know, you know, that, that a human being can go through all of these trials and, and they can actually fall and falter and betray themselves and betray each other and still be beautiful and still be redeemed and still be cleaned up and still be set right. And we don't have to be prisoners to the mistakes that we've made, even though creation may do that. And it may be their right to do that. You know what I'm saying? I might have, a person might have to go to prison if they kill somebody. But between that human being and the creator, a person can still get right with Allah. And those people say, you know, I'm in prison because I did, I did the wrong thing. You know, not that I love prison, but I was just an example. Or somebody might say, you harmed me and I don't trust you. And I don't want, I don't want to, I don't, I, you harm me and I don't trust you. And I say, okay, I accept that. I wronged you. But doesn't mean that person can't get right with Allah. That's always there. And so the story in the Quran when, when shaitan, when Satan said, they're not worthy of that. You're creating somebody that can make mistakes and that can do wrong. Like what shaitan is saying is, is really what we're worried about. When I, some, what I'm worried about is like, but what Allah says is I created you to know and to, and to become a person of integrity and to be what I say you are, which is the, the representative of the creator in the midst of all of this. That's your potential. It's not saying that's not a claim that that's what you are, 
But that's what your potential is. That's what the Creator says of us. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the people like him, men and women, they're proof that that's possible. And that's part of what we love so much about the Prophet Muhammad and all the prophets. It's part of what we love about Mary. It's part of what we love about the companions, is that they each were different types of human beings. Fatima and Khadija and Omar and, you know, all of these incredible people, Maimuna and uh, amazing human beings, you know, and that all of them are proof that it is possible to live our beliefs and, and to really be people of integrity. That's possible. Ultimately, believing is, that's part of what it is to be a believer. It's like, I believe that I can be what I know I am. I'm not claiming that I am it, but I believe that there's a way, there is a route for me to be completely beautiful and to be good and for my goodness to be manifest and known. Not that there will ever be a time that I'm not struggling in this part of life and that ultimately when it all comes out, that the goodness I believe about myself and the goodness that I believe in other people is ultimately more important than any mistakes that I made and that they made. So may Allah rectify all of this for us. Uh, may Allah make us people that are able to, to be and to verify and to walk in the best of who we are and to not be slaves of the mistakes that we made and, and to not be slave masters and jail keepers of ourselves to not be oppressors of ourselves by wronging ourselves, by doing wrong, and then by being stuck in the, the mistakes that we've made, and to not be jailers and oppressors and slave masters of other people when they make mistakes. Oof. Um, thank you to the Zakat Foundation for sponsoring this, uh, and thank you to BetterHelp. Go to Zakat Foundation, zakat.org, Z-A-K-A-T.org. They do a lot of good all over the world. Give some money. You know what I'm saying? If you're like, oh, this was cool. This was dope. Uh, Zakat Foundation is actually supporting and sponsoring this. So if you're like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that Brother Ali gets to sit in a room and talk and just share what he thinks. Uh, go put in something on what Zakat Foundation does and help them do their work. Help them do their good work around the world. Like ultimately they support us doing this show so that we can spread the word about them so that you'll go and help the orphans that they help or the earthquake survivors that they help or the famine survivors that they help. All the They just help people all over the world, Muslim and non-Muslim and all that stuff. And then also betterhelp.com is the online therapy platform that um, I use for therapy. And they've allowed, they've, they've said that they'd have this partnership with us so that if you decide you want to do therapy online in the place that I do it, go to betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash travelers. And um, they'll give you a discount. And then you also have access to their whole like network of trained licensed professionals. And then also every time somebody signs up with that, we get, um, we get a, actually a nice, uh, like a contribution, what do they call that? Commission. We get a commission. And that really helps. You know what I mean? When you do that, it helps support the work that we do, not only on this podcast, but also on Travelers Media. Be back next week, inshallah, with guests. And I love you a lot. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.